Today we have with us Susan Miller and Sean. I have no idea how to pronounce your last name. Please pronounce it. <laughs> it's Mirzabagian. Awesome. So you guys have a lot of experience in investment banking, and this is something that is going to be a great conversation for our guests on the show who um, would like to hear about, you know, kind of the, the benefits of bringing on an investment banker, when to bring on an investment banker. And I'd love to learn about first each of your backgrounds, and then we'll kind of jump into the lessons you guys have learned, the key insights you've learned in your experience uh, in in your profession. So why don't you kick us off with your backgrounds? Sounds good. Go Great. Uh, I'll get started. So I have been working in investment banking for over 18 years. I spent first five years of my career in New York with JP Morgan's consumer healthcare team. So focused on billion dollar plus transactions. Had an opportunity to move down to Austin, Texas and help them open up their middle market restaurant investment banking team. So focusing on companies with less than 500 million in sales. Um, after spending time with them, I learned that my passion is really working with founder-led businesses, many of which, when you're in the $500 million range, are not led by founders by that point. Um, so chose to leave J.P. Morgan and work at a boutique firm. So I spent 12 years working with companies with less than $250 million in value. Most were in the $25 to $50 million range. Uh, first time tapping institutional capital or helping with succession planning with family members not wanting to take over the business. After making that jump, like most, I decided it was time to go off on my own. So with some prodding from Sean, left a year ago to launch Morgan Kingston. So with that, I'll turn over to Sean. Awesome. Yeah. Um uh, I guess I've spent the last, you know, f- 15 plus years uh, in investment banking, both on the sell side, buy side. I've had some uh, entrepreneurial ventures myself. Started my career uh, launching and investing and operating an independent record label. And I did that for several years. Then um, I worked for a few different banks Northern Trust, Wind Trust. Those banks are more known for their lending capabilities. Um, uh, then I went to. Um, the corporate M&A world, I worked for a large cap tech company uh, focused on acquiring software companies all over the globe. <clears throat> we acquired companies um, anywhere from, you know, Russia, all over Europe. Uh, I did a deal in Kuwait, um, Korea, you name it. So uh, it was definitely interesting. Uh, international M&A is kind of another animal than domestic. <laughs> um, so I spent some time there. And then I left there, I started another business, an event staffing agency, where we uh, provided promotional models and brand ambassadors for uh, experiential marketing campaigns throughout the country. Ran that business for about three and a half years uh, with a partner of mine. Um, Ultimately uh, sold my share of the business to my partner, and I left there and I joined a middle market investment bank out of Chicago called Dresner Partners. I was a generalist there, <clears throat> which means I worked in all different sectors. So from consumer, restaurants, retail, healthcare, uh, tech, industrials, uh, chemicals, financial services, you name it. Um, most of the transactions we focused on were, you know, kind of in the, you know, 20 million on the low side, all the way up to, you know, five, 600 million uh, on the high side. Um, from there, I moved to Austin, joined Susan at our prior firm, Worked with her for about uh, five years or so. Uh, My focus there was um, primarily on, you know, distress special situations and financial restructuring, bankruptcy transactions, things like that. Uh, And then, you know, we launched our firm, Morgan Kingston, uh, just over a year ago. And uh, here we are. Awesome. This is going to be a great discussion because you guys have such a comprehensive experience on, you know, 
from being buy side, sell side, being founders. Um, so let's kind of start high level. When would someone want to bring on an investment banker versus a business broker? So, you know, I'll start. So the difference to me between a business broker and an investment banker is uh, business brokers typically, uh, you know, it's smaller deals, smaller companies. I think more of, you know, my buddy who might own a bar in Chicago sold it. You know, we're talking a couple hundred thousand dollar transactions. Once you get into the institutional capital level, um, you know, it's a lot more expertise, a lot more analysis, a lot more valuation. Um, a lot more negotiation, uh, you know, more third parties involved in the deal, things of that nature. Um, so that's kind of how I see the difference between a business broker and investment banking. Um, I think traditionally investment banking, historically, you know, it's known for the larger deals, you know, the Goldman Sachs of the world. Um, I think over the last, you know, 25, 30 years, people have spun off and started their own middle market investment banks, which over time those have grown. Um, so. You know, these days, you know, you'll have the bulge bracket investment banks. Um, you'll have kind of the middle market, which people define that differently. Uh, the bulge bracket guys might say the middle market is, you know, $500 million range. Um, the middle market, lower middle market guys might say, you know, it's under $500 million. So we kind of play in that space under the $500 million. Um, it's a different type of environment in a transaction. Uh, you know, you're not selling a company and advising a company that has, you know, 20 people in an in, in accounting team, right? So a lot of these companies don't have that sophistication on the operational side, the financial reporting side that these larger companies do. So it's, um, it's a little different, a uh, little bit more of a different dynamic animal when you go kind of middle market and lower middle market. Got it. Got it. So it sounds like the companies have to be a little more sophisticated. Does, is there a difference in enterprise value where it might make sense to bring in one versus another? I think, uh, to Sean's point earlier, if you're going to tap institutional capital, meaning um, a family office or traditional private equity firm, you're looking at transactions in, for an enterprise value, I'd say $10 million or above. Um, institutional will invest smaller if you have a clear path to achieve that milestone. But to the extent it's a onesie, twosie business, using Sean's example, a flower shop or a bar, that's where I think a business broker is much more appropriate. Got it. Got it. Now, part of your role as bank, as investment bankers is finding buyers or sellers. So, which one is harder to find right now? It's a great question. Mm -hmm. I think for us, because we've been in it so long, we have a really strong network right now. I think our investor base is over six hundred. Not <laughs> six hundred investors are not looking at every transaction. It's very specific. On the uh, sell side, I think a lot of it has to do with um, smaller companies looking to grow. They are beyond their friends and family round in terms of funding, so are looking to get a bigger check to accelerate growth. Or on the other side, it's a business that's been around for 20 or 30 years and the owners are looking to retire and don't necessarily have someone in the family they're ready to hand the keys to. What would you say would be the percentage that that uh, that kind of baby boomer generation represents of the types of of the sellers that you that you've seen? It depends on the profile of the business. Yeah. So when we're dealing with say a franchisee of a large national brand, so a thirty unit Burger King franchisee, in most cases those are succession driven transactions. If it's a young emerging brand, so 
pick a menu category, the latest food truck that's now moving to brick and mortar, and they're looking to re- raise $10 million to blow out growth, those tend to be more kind of millennial in age. So it, it really gr- varies greatly. Gotcha. Um, and what are the motivations for for selling uh, for, for the younger generation? I think it's all about the second bite of the apple, honestly. Um, you know, whether, I guess it's, it's two things. Maybe the founders want to move on. Uh, typically, a buyer would want them to stay in and roll in to some extent, which, you know, we like to refer as the second bite of the apple. You might sell a majority share, which, you know, we would consider it's a full sell-side M&A deal. But you're rolling in a percentage of your ownership and uh, you may continue in an operating role or in an advisory role on the board to some capacity you're involved. And ultimately, uh, that buyer wants to, you know, maintain the business and obviously grow it, right? So uh, if you roll in some equity, you know, the second bite of the apple, that investor, that buyer, there's a good chance that over some timeline, they will want to exit as well. And that could be your second exit. And that's what we call you know, the second bite of the apple. I think another part of it too has to do when a business reaches a certain stage, sometimes founders recognize their own limitations as an owner. So it takes an incredible skill to come up with a business idea, to execute it, to then prove that it can scale. But when it hits a certain point in scaling, many business owners realize this is not their strength. So it's not necessarily building out an accounting department or an HR department. Their passion is in the brand, in the creation of the product, the connection with the guests. So at that point, they may look to professionalize their management team and position the company for that next stage of growth. And very often when they hit that inflection point is when we see institutional capital come in. How often do you see founders wanting to, or business owners wanting to maintain um, some level of involvement post-acquisition, kind of like what you described? And on the other side, how often do you see sellers wanting business owners to continue being involved after that, that kind of it's, first bite of the apple? It's a mix. I, I think it leans towards, um, you know, depending on the stage of the company. I think most buyers would like the founders to stay to some extent because, you know, if they built the culture, they don't want to change that culture, right? Because it's been successful um, t- to the extent they achieved. So they, they don't want to come in day one and just change things, right? That could ruin the business, obviously. So we see a lot of uh, a lot of groups, um you know, the, and it also thinks what they think of the founders, right? They might think there's a great business here, but the founders don't make sense anymore. So it's time to, you know, not let them stay in um, and, and just take complete control. So it's kind of a mix. I think we see it more often than not in the lower middle market because the companies tend to be earlier stage. The most investors view the founders or the senior operators that have built the company to this point as the soul of the company. And the worst possible thing they could do is come in and crush that. So we will work with founders to help define their role through the negotiation of the transaction documents, whether it's a chairman of the board position that's more um, either guest facing or to Sean's point, uh, internal culture building as opposed to picking the sites for the next location or negotiating the next large vendor agreement, but figuring out where their strengths sit and making sure that those continue on. Makes sense. How is the lower middle market uh, for M&A affected by uh, economic downturns? Valuation? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, that's what everybody's trying to figure out, you know, all the time, right? When is it the right time to sell? When's the right time to buy? You know, every, uh, variables come into play, right? Um, what are the leverage markets doing? You know, the debt markets, right? Is debt still cheap? Um, yeah, you know, I think it, it obviously depends on the type of business, you know. Um, is it cyclical? Is it not? Um, is it recession-proof? That's some like to say, which it's tough to be recession-proof. You know, so it, it, it's difficult, but I think it, in general it impacts everybody. Um, you know, it's tough to get the higher valuations in a downturn. Capital is more expensive in a downturn. Interest rates are higher. Um, you know, in a in a in I guess a, a positive economic situation, you know, that's where you usually see valuations rise. Um, I would say there's no doubt that the debt environment impacts valuation. So the more debt a business can qualify for, the higher the price a bidder's willing to pay because they can finance it with someone else's money instead of their own. So when we see debt markets tighten up, we often see a crunch in valuations as well. I'd say the availability of growth capital also tends to tighten up because again, that's a straight equity investment. At the end of the day, if you're a great company with amazing trends, there will always be a buyer or investor out there. Who are typical buyers that you're seeing now? Are they primarily strategic or financial? Or some have said they're strategic backed by financial, and so they're kind of the yeah, same, one, one and the same? It, it's changed over the last, you know, 15, 20 years. I, f- I feel like, you know, back in the day we used to say, you know, strategic or financial, but because there's so much private equity capital these days, it's not unusual anymore. And, you know, their portfolio companies are now strategics. I mean, it's, you know, now it still depends, right? So a lot of strategics there, what we consider a strategic, technically, it's usually a larger company. So they could be a large public company, right? So they're not wholly owned by a financial investor. Um, you know, most of the universe, I think it depends on the on the sector and industry that you're operating in, what the kind of mix of financial and strategic is. Um, you know, for the main sectors that we focus on, I would say financial buyers are probably the majority of the groups we discuss. Um, but there's always, you know, uh, a bunch of strategics that we always have to talk to and show opportunities to because they're looking to grow as well. I think a lot of it also depends on the goals of the business of the seller. So, for example, if they're looking to exit the business completely, they would be more willing to talk to a strategic investor. A strategic investor is less likely to keep the management team on because they're gonna have some form of synergy. They're not gonna need two CEOs, they're not gonna need two CFOs, and that's where the attraction has been as of late. Given the tightness in labor markets, most small companies, we see a lot of consolidation for that same reason. So they can leverage the same back office team over multiple brands or businesses in order to save money as you know, we see some tightening in the market. For an investor that is looking to stay on, they would tend to go to a financial buyer. One of the common misconceptions is that a strategic buyer will always pay more for an asset than a financial buyer. And while yes, that's true, they're not gonna pay you necessarily for their own synergies. So it's one thing to keep in mind. Very interesting. When you're representing a seller, how do you prepare them to uh, you know, be curated or, some, or to be basically be prepared for a financial buyer versus a strategic buyer? 
So one of the things that we do at our firm is spend a lot of time getting to know a business upfront. Uh, we want to uncover every skeleton in the closet and address it proactively. We have a very varied background regarding uh, working on the buy side and the sell side, on the principal investment side as well, and lending. So we like to put on all of those hats, evaluate an opportunity from all different angles, and really push our client to not only have the financials and data prepared to move forward, but also be prepared for buyers potentially poking holes in their business plan or financial plan and help them work through those types of responses. What are some maybe unobvious motivations of strategic and financial buyers beyond just say like cash flow and synergies that that sellers should be aware of? You know, obviously roll-up opportunities are a big driver for, you know, financial buyers. They want to, you know, dominate a market, right? So they might acquire different companies in a similar space in, in one geographical area, as an example. On the strategic side, um, a lot of it's to take out your competition, right? Um, you know, my experience as, um, you know, in, in tech M&A specifically, you always do the analysis, you know, is this, uh, you know, you do a buy versus build analysis. Should we buy this company and acquire it or should we, you know, what's going to cost to build it? in-house proprietarily, right? So you kind of weigh the pros and cons of both. Um, you know, larger companies, uh, they typically have corporate M&A teams where, you know, they might have to deploy, you know, let's call it $100 million a year and acquire companies. That might be one company, that might be 10 companies, right? So you always kind of look at what the options are. Um, in the strategic world specifically, that's where a lot of the competitive dynamics come. So Depending on the company that we're advising and working with on a transaction, you know, what information do we want to put out there to a strategic that's a direct competitor? So there's all these kind of different variables to take into consideration, uh, depending on what, what the company wants, what the founders want. So given you guys' diverse background, I'd like to pick, you know, uh, a couple of different industries or maybe, you know, uh, companies that have less than $5 million in EBITDA and kind of dive into a few questions uh, kind of specific to those to those industries. So um, I think w when we talked before the show, we talked about uh, restaurants and uh, was it retail healthcare? Mm -hmm. um, so let's start with, with restaurants. Uh, what do acquirers in these industries, in that industry, uh, typically look for in, in targets? So they're very focused on same store sales. So looking at each unit as its own business entity and what those trends are. They're focused on what we call four wall economics. So all of the sales and expenses that occur within the four walls of that restaurant, how does that compare to their peers? I think the other big levers are uh, maintenance, CapEx. So um, restaurants require a continuous reinvestment every year. And every five to seven years, they require a major facelift. So where are these units in their CapEx life cycle? And then I think the last big bucket is leases. So to the extent that the locations are leased, not owned, what are the terms of the lease? Um, was there a big tenant allowance on the front end that has resulted in huge escalations on the back end? Or if you're a franchisee of a brand, does your franchise agreement align with the terms of your lease? God forbid you have a franchise agreement that expires five years before your lease. What are you going to do with that space? <laughs> You'd be surprised. <laughs> <laughs> so how how can companies, uh, you know, how, how can restaurants prepare their 
their business for, for an acquisition, given all kind of these variables you just mentioned. So one of the challenges in the restaurant industry is it is a penny business. It's very tough. Right now, the market is facing huge pressures on the labor side, both with rising minimum wage, but also finding labor to staff the restaurants. So it's very hard to convince a restaurateur and owner to make certain investments because for them, they're trading payroll for investments. Our challenge in the lower mono market is typically on the financial reporting side. So many restaurants will have a family member or a CPA friend casually put together the books. It's absolutely critical to have your books in order and your ability to produce clear and timely financials will get you tremendous value on the back end. And if you can't, you risk blowing up a process. In, in you know, to your question, who actually does this work? We do. I mean, we literally facilitate you know, all the information flow goes through us. We review it all. We prepare a data room. So when we're ready to allow investors into the data room, we know exactly what's in there, how it's organized, what we're putting forth. What does it mean? What does it say? Uh, we know how investors are going to look at it. Um, and, you know, we know where the red flags are. So we try to uncover all of this. It's, it's basically our pre-marketing diligence that, you know, when we sign up a new company, a new client, you know, all of this is kind of the upfront work that we do to prepare for the process. And look, part of our job besides negotiating the deal um, in, in finding buyers and investors, it's also, um, you know, to allow the management team to focus on operations, right? So we, you don't want your CEO, your CFO, your COO, whoever, you know, focused on raising capital, right? That's what we do. Um, it's tough to prepare the information because it's kind of a second job, right, from their normal day-to-day operations. But, you know, an organized business should have most of this ready to go. And that kind of brings me to the next point is, you know, you should always run your business as if you're going to sell it one day so everything's organized and clean. You know, whether it's just files on a server, right, all your leases are here. Um, you know, maybe have a software system that says when the leases expire and, you know, what time frame you have to give notice to extend that option on the lease so you don't miss it, things like that. So all of the financials, you know, everything to, everything to that extent, um, ideally it's nice and ready to go. A lot of times we don't see that. So we, we do what we can to help prepare the company to make it, you know, less onerous for them. If it's something that is difficult to provide, we'll help find a workaround that we know will, um, you know, be okay for investors to review, things of that nature. I mean, we've we've done it all. We've gone into QuickBooks, if people are still on QuickBooks, we've gone into their POS systems on uh, restaurant deals to pull daily sales where we create a same store sales file because maybe they don't do that on a regular basis. So we pretty much do what we can to help the company get where they need to go before we go to market. Have you seen restaurants try to, you know, run an acquisition process on their own? And how did that go? They usually come back to us. Usually we're called <laughs> to, to do the cleanup work, uh, which is unfortunate. And it's uh, it's not just the restaurant industry, it's other industries. And the risk that the, the owner has is if you're not prepared to, A, go to head, head-to-head with an institutional investor who likely has a team of M&A attorneys and uh, accountants, um, you risk being a shop deal. So the challenge for us in that case, and we work on them often, uh, is to go back and have to reconfigure that story and positioning to the market and convince someone that might have said no the first time because the positioning in your story wasn't as strong as it could have been. 
and get them re-engaged. So a big part of our job with all the other things we've mentioned so far, it's creating the narrative and the story behind the business. Where they, you know, historically, where they are today and where they're going, right? That is the story we create that we pitch the deal to buyers. When, uh, when you don't have that kind of third party doing that, it's tough to convey the right message. It's tough to run the process um, in an accurate, efficient way when you you know have your day job, right? Um, it's tough to stay organized. It's tough to understand what people are asking for and why. You know what are they getting at? Um, you know we we do the valuations that all the buyers are doing. We do it ourselves just to kind of gut check where we think you know a, a company might trade at, right? I mean we do all that work, the same work a buyer would do. Um, you don't want to do that in-house. It's just, it's too much, let alone the expertise involved in it. We also add credibility and accountability to a process. So our job is to create a competitive environment. If someone feels like they're going to lose something, they're going to work harder, they're going to adhere to your timelines. If you don't hold investors accountable to meeting certain deadlines, something will come up, something will get pushed, you're never going to get it done. But when you tell someone, bids are due on this date. This is the profile of the bid that we want. These are the items we want you to touch on. This is how your bid's being evaluated. Then it gets them a lot more serious. For those that are exploring and unwilling to do that, to me, that says that they're a tire kicker and they're never going to get there anyway. What's the risk of dealing with a tire kicker? Wasted time, money. You kind of open up the fridge to your neighbor and you don't really want them in there, right? I mean, that's that's what it is. They're looking under the hood, spending all this time gathering your data. I mean, they're gathering intel, right? Um, they may be bidding on another company that is a competitor of yours. So all those things are risks. Um, you know, we have relationships with hundreds of uh, investors and buyers, whether financial or strategic. We stay in contact with them. We know exactly what they're looking for. Um, you know, a lot of these groups we talk to monthly, quarterly, when we have an opportunity that we think fits their profile, that's when they, you know, they'll, they'll get the pitch from us, get the call from us that, hey, we got an opportunity you should look at. So we're not just blasting, you know, our, our clients' information out to the world. We're, we're pre-qualifying participants in a process before they really get to know the business. So we put together a robust information memorandum. Think of it as a 50 to 60 page book that tells your past, present, and future story of the business. We make investors sign a confidentiality agreement before receiving that document. That's step one of telling us that they're they're serious, they're willing to sign that. They get those materials and those materials alone to put in a non-binding indication of interest. At that point, if they put in a non-binding indication of interest that meets our valuation thresholds and whatever else outlined in our process letter that's important to our client, then we decide that they get access to management and a data room and all the other information. Until that point, we don't have them have any access to management because the last thing we want to do, as Sean mentioned earlier, is disrupt the day-to-day operations of the business. Have you ever decided not to take on a business as a client? And if so, why? <laughs> yes. Number one reason, I'll say it, is valuation expectations. Um, You know, before we sign up a a client, you know, we will do a gut check valuation for them, you know, informal. Um, If that is aligned with, you know, where with what they're thinking and what they want, then it makes sense to move forward. If it's not, then, you know, doesn't even make sense. So that is the number one thing. 
We're very big on transparency. I think there are, unfortunately, a lot of bankers out there that will take on an assignment just to have an assignment, knowing full well it's not going to get done. We are relationship-driven. The worst thing that we can do for a client, but as well as our firm, is to take on a transaction that's not going to close. So before we get to an engagement letter phase, we make sure that everyone is clearly aligned on valuation, expectations, understanding of the process. And then as we get into the process, we continue to have that line of communication open to the extent something changes to make sure that we're all aligned. It sounds like you know your buyers pretty well. So how are restaurant deals typically structured? Usually it's an asset purchase. Um, They're pretty clean. I think um, transferring the leases over liquor licenses is probably the most time-consuming part of it. Um, But for the most part, they're, they're pretty simple business models to understand. Right. And, you know, if it's a if it's a full sale M&A deal, if it goes to a strategic, you know, um, transition services agreements are important. How are you going to transition, you know, operating uh, items to that buyer? Right. So there's usually kind of a transition and it's and it's an agreement basically that everybody has to kind of adhere to and it gets negotiated. So that's an important part of it. We'll see stock deals as well. You know, depending on if you're buyer or seller, you know, you might prefer one or the other. It could be also uh, somewhat dependent on, you know, the current structure of the company. There may have to be, um, you know, some restructuring of the legal entities to uh, take the shape and form of the deal you want to close with. Um, so it all depends, you know, and, you know, usually once we get to that point, that's where we bring in M&A counsel, we bring in tax counsel, uh, tax accountants, things of that nature. Besides valuation expectations, or I should say unrealistic valuation expectations, are there any other red flags that typically can kill a deal in the restaurant industry? I'd say inability to produce financial statements and the credibility of those financials. More and more, we are seeing deals require quality of earnings immediately. Um, Some companies look to do a quality of earnings before they start a process. That's good and bad. It's kind of like a practice run, but it's a pretty expensive practice run. If if you've got the capital to do that, it can be helpful. But at the end of the day, an investor is going to want their own firm doing that analysis. Right. And, 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 you know, for those who aren't familiar with the quality earnings, that's when a buyer at a certain point in the deal process will bring in, you know, typically a third party accounting firm, um, their transaction advisory team, where they're basically going to Uh, take the company's financials and the financials we use to market the deal. And they're going to take a look under the hood with all the books, all the different metrics and uh, bank statements, tick and tie, cash, accrual, you name it, and just make sure that it adds up, right? It's kind of the gut check, you know, on the accounting side of things. So it's important. Companies that are sophisticated in their accounting and finance departments, usually there's no issue at all. Companies where um, they're not as sophisticated and there's a lot of, you know, room to improve on on that standpoint, you know, that's when we kind of have to roll up our sleeves and try to help them get to a point where uh, before we go to market, we know it would pass a quality of earnings test. So we do our best in those situations to get the company prepared. And it's a lot of excess work. Um, You know, that's why we love working with companies that have great controllers or a great CFO. It it makes our lives a lot easier, as you can imagine. Yeah, I can. What type of due diligence should uh, restaurant owners do of their potential acquirers? 
I think one of the one of the things we encourage our um, sellers is to ask for a list of referrals from the buyer, so they can have one-on-one conversations with founders or owners of businesses that had sold to that firm, and let them ask in a private environment really, you know, tough questions of was this a good partner when times were bad? What do you like about the relationship? What you don't like? It's a bit of a marriage. So it, very rarely do we see owners completely walk away for a business from a business. And frankly, if they are, they tend to still live within the community of their business and have some personal tie to it. So it's it's important to get to know the buyer as much, you know, your impression of them is equally important. So think of it as a, a two-way street. So let's transition to the other industry we talked about. Uh, this is retail healthcare. Mm-hmm. So first, for those unfamiliar, could you define what retail healthcare means? Sure. Yeah, we would define it as you know anything that's outside of the hospital on the healthcare side. So think multi-clinic um, healthcare services. There are a lot of similarities to other retail industries, such as restaurants. Um, you know, I think over the last seven years or so, I think retail healthcare has really been booming. Um, you know, uh, hospitals are a tough environment. It's expensive. Uh, just the shift in the whole value-based care, uh, a lot of things, and a lot of it's government-related, right? So there's a lot of these outpatient centers that are popping up. Think urgent cares, um, occupational medicine, um, you know, um, dermatology, dermatology clinics, dental clinic, physical therapy. You know, that's what we would put in uh, consider. You know, multi-unit retail healthcare. So a lot of the a lot of the analysis is similar. We look, we like to look at the four walls of each location, right? And then you kind of consolidate that. And then there's usually the corporate office, which is basically a cost center. And then you kind of get to your net, uh, you know, net profitability, your net EBITDA, so to speak, from there. So, um, you know, similar to retail and restaurants, although the revenue model is completely different. It's not, you know, one-time purchases at the register, depending on the type of business you're dealing with, uh, revenue coming from the government, from insurance, from companies, from, you know, private individuals. So collecting uh, that revenue is can be difficult. So an important part of uh, companies in this space is their billing and collections, their pre- procedures, their processes, systems, uh, their collections team. You know, some, some companies have an in-house team and they also leverage a third party team that they outsource as well. So building and collections is, is a whole nother uh, kind of, um, you know, department for a multi-unit healthcare company. How can business owners in, in this industry position their companies for, for acquisition? You know, it's not much different. Um, a lot of it is kind of the integrity with the data, the financials, um, you know, anything related to systems, vendor contracts, things of that nature. You still want to operate a nice, clean business. Uh, I think, you know, a lot of business owners, especially the legacy ones, maybe the baby boomers, I think, um, you know, when they run a lot of personal expenses through the business, regardless the type of, you know, industry they're in, I think, um, you know, they're a little skeptical about it. They like to hide it. We obviously need to know that so we can strip it out. It's just going to, you know, improve your profitability, most likely. Um, If you have three cars running through the business and a buyer is not going to take over those three cars, we'll strip that out right away. So, and it's normal for business owners to run personal expenses in the lower middle market through their business, right? I mean, it's, it's founder owned pretty much at this time. So, we like to get com- companies comfortable. Like, it's okay that you're doing that. Just tell us where they are, you know, so we're not searching forever. You know, why is this, you know, 
laundry private jet. Why, <laughs> what's this private jet? Why is you know the laundry line item? You know why did it quadruple in one month last year? You what, know what does Aunt Maggie really do <laughs> for the business? Right, yeah, and that, that's another good point. You have a lot of friends and family in the business. Are they really you know working in the business? Yeah, are they contributing? So Which, yeah. we, we got to pro forma the financials to make uh, to make it look like what is a buyer and investor actually going to receive if they buy this company because that's the valuation that needs to be driven off of you know those are the numbers things of that nature and it's totally normal to have all this so we find ourselves you know with kind of legacy owners they think it's not and they're worried about it it's okay you have your wife on your payroll (laughs) just let us know you know (laughs) so um but it's the same way they have to prepare the same way and and i would go say that in any business Mm -hmm. you know um and and how are deals in, in this industry typically structured (laughs) <laughs> it's complicated. It's a lot more complex with the medical side. Uh, typically, if you are providing medical services, depending on what those really are, um, you know, law is that a physician, it, that entity that's providing the service has to be 100% physician owned. So we'll see companies that, um, you know, the business might be, let's call it a two entity company. One is actually providing the professional medical services. One is more the corporate kind of back office. They have an agreement, management services agreement in between. So that could get complicated because in in a transaction, you know, who is the buyer actually buying, right? They technically, you know, private equity firm technically can't own a medical entity because it has to be physician owned. So it gets a little bit more difficult and tricky, but you know, that's why it's important to have um, advisors investment bankers, uh, your legal team, your accounting team, tax team, everybody needs to know uh, transactions. Everybody needs to know securities, but you know, you also bring in the experts on that specific industry because that's where, you know, healthcare is different than restaurants. How should sellers think about different types of transaction structures from, you know, all cash versus, you know, earnouts, um, And there's other types of structures kind of in between that. How do you advise them on on, on that question? I think a lot of it depends on their confidence in their new partner and what their role is going forward. If you are completely walking away from the business but have a large portion of your proceeds tied up in an earnout, that's a little tough to swallow because when you step away from the business, you no longer have control over whatever's gonna produce that potential earnout. If you were selling a smaller portion of your business and staying on board and have the ability to control and make sure that the business produces it, that's a totally different story. Um, I think it also depends on the the homework you've done on that partner, what their reputation is in the industry, how large a a firm is it, is it a a mom and pop private equity or is it a $4 billion private equity firm? It's really transaction specific. I've been through earnout litigation. Um, it's not pretty. I think the key is to make sure it's well defined. So there's no questions asked two years later when you're expecting a big check and you know the buyer says that's not coming. <laughs> um, it, it, it can be an interesting dynamic. you know so typically we see there's cash deals, there's stock deals. Um, uh, owners or shareholders will roll in some of their equity, take some cash off the table in a recap. Uh, we'll see um, in the lower, lower middle market, we'll see seller notes as part of the capital structure, um, as well as earnouts. You know, I, and, and from our standpoint, you know, the cleanest is obviously not to have a seller's note and not to have an earnout. Um, we like the deal to be there and done at the time of closing. 
That is what we prefer. That is what we would negotiate towards. Um, but then again, you know, there's reasons, as Susan mentioned, why earnout might make sense. Um, you know, you could be a, a startup growth company and, you know, a large strategic is acquiring you and you haven't hit your full potential and they're buying you because they can layer on other applications to what you've created and what they're acquiring. So they're going to pay you an earnout based on the performance of that. So then you just want to make sure that's well defined because you don't want the company, you know, two years later to say, okay, well, we bought you. All you had was X. We built it to Y. We're not going to pay you from X to Y that full 100%. You know, well, what are you going to get paid then? So just make sure it's well defined if you have to go the earnout route. Um, and also, uh, you know, make make sure it's achievable, right? I mean, that's part of the, the defining, I guess. You know, you don't want to just sign up for and negotiate and sign up and close a deal that really doesn't make any sense. Usually, a tool used to close a valuation gap. So, if it's a clean deal at a great valuation, I would say take the all cash. Um, but if there's a disconnect between what you think the business is worth and what a buyer is willing to pay and you are very confident you can achieve those goals, then you may be willing to take on a seller's note or an earnout. And the tough part about lower middle market, if we're talking about deals that are under, or I, I guess under 15 million, let's call it, maybe under 20 even, depending on you know what your EBITDA is, it's tough to for a buyer to put leverage on that deal, right? So if they can't buy the company with debt, they have to use all cash or they have to try to negotiate a seller's note. So look at it uh, as buying a house, right? You put a down payment and you leverage and get a mortgage for the rest, right? It's no different. Over time, you're going to pay down your mortgage and your equity is going to go up assuming the asset appreciates. So buying a company is really no different. Um, but if you can buy it all cash, obviously the seller likes that better. A lot of times to our Susan's point earlier, you can achieve higher valuations if the buyer can put leverage on it, especially in environments and economic, um, you know, economic uh, times where debt's cheap, like right now. So it all kind of depends. You really got to weigh all these variables. It could get complex, um, but that's what we do. <laughs> do you guys have any last pieces of advice for business owners considering selling? I think surround yourself with good advisors. So if you have a good friend who's an attorney, they may not be the best attorney for the deal. Um, make sure, to Sean's point earlier, like the healthcare is a great example. Hire professionals that are specific to your industry, to the size of your business, and who are used to doing transactions with the type of buyers that you're seeking. So if you're seeking institutional buyers, find advice that's used to working with institutional advisors. And if, uh, and when hiring an investment banker, make sure they're under a broker dealer. You know, they should be registered with the securities industry. They should be licensed. Um, we see a lot of times, um, you know, lately a, a lot of these small groups that call themselves investment bankers, they're not even licensed. And there's a lot of risk and liability, not only on the seller, but also the buyer. And then obviously on, you know, the advisor who's not licensed. So just make sure you kind of do your check and, and ask the right questions and make sure you find the right group that's a fit for you for, you know, any of the third party advisors that you use. Awesome. Uh, Sean, Susan, thank you so much for your time today. Where can people go to learn more about your practice? They can visit our website. It's morgankingston.com. Fantastic. Thanks again. Thank right. you. Thank you.